to be reminded that we live in uh, some strange and interesting times. Certainly not new in terms of human experience, but certainly new for us as American citizens who are facing uh, challenges, not so much now as much as what we see coming in the future related to our ability to live uh, with such uh, freedoms and ease in terms of the expression of our Christian faith. And so we are facing times that, again, God's people have faced periodically throughout the history of the world in which it calls for wisdom. It calls for a clarity of thinking and wisdom about what is our role in the citizen, as citizens of this world and as citizens of God, as citizens of heaven, or citizens, uh, God's people and citizens of heaven. And so Solomon uh, gives us just that this morning, at least a part of how we are to view ourselves as Christians in a fallen world and under fallen human authority. Now, we looked at that actually broadly when we went through the book of 1 Peter, and we spent some weeks on it, understanding civil authority, uh, its establishment even in the creation ordinance, the creation mandate, and how it is affected by the fall and what our relationship to it is in 1 Peter chapter 2. But Solomon is going to take us back to that same place from a slightly different perspective, but no less crucial in us, to us in our understanding of how do we live in a fallen world where there is authority over us that is not reflective of God's righteousness, but no less established by God himself. It certainly presents conundries that we need to be well aware of. So the main idea of Solomon this morning is he counsels us on how to live wisely under human authority that is tainted by sin and yet is under the providence of God, which remains to us forever a mystery. And so we'll look very broadly at three principles of wisdom before a just God in an unjust world. So three principles of wisdom before a just God in an unjust world. The short title of each of those points are, he teaches us wisdom is cautious, is patient, and has integrity. And then we'll expand on those on each one. So let me read first Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a long section, but I'll read uh, all 17 verses, the entire chapter. And then we'll, of course, swing back around And begin to look at it more closely. So beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Read with me. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him and do not join in an evil matter. For he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, and those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. 
Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And this again is the wisdom of Solomon. Let's look back at verse 1. Verses 1, we're beginning in verse 1. And note, that wisdom is cautious, that wisdom responds to the authority of men with caution. And that caution then is a patient caution. It's patient to the authority established by God, though it is corrupted and though it is marred by sin. He begins with a familiar refrain in verse 1, "...who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter?" Again, this is characteristic of Solomon. The very hallmark of his ministry, the very hallmark of his life was this intentional focus on wisdom to understand how the world works and how to live effectively and wisely in the world. Of course, he himself was, as we know, not the best example of that at the end of his life. And yet he is no less raised up by God to teach us wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom can most easily be described as the ability or the skill to apply knowledge or to apply truth to the complexities of life. It's an ability, it's an, a, a skill to take what you know to be true and to apply it to all the diverse situations that we face living in the world. That is a wise person, and it's essential for joy. And this is, of course, from a biblical perspective and from a true perspective, not merely wisdom for wisdom's sake. It's not the worldly wise as we meet, for example, in Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and those who simply know how the world works. But wisdom in its essence, wisdom in its fullness, wisdom in its most meaningful sense is spiritual wisdom that is grounded in the fear of God and that is guided by the goal to glorify God. So it's grounded in the fear of God and it has as its goal the glory of God. That is a wise person in a wise life. And we could hear an echo of the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man if he's wise throughout his whole life but he has not known the wisdom that connects him to God and God's purposes in this world and in eternity? And so here Solomon points us to the importance of wisdom. A wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter which is, in short, simply to say who is discerning. Someone who is discerning. 
Someone who finds themselves in complex situation, discerns the heart of it, discerns the essence of it, and knows how to act and knows how to respond. That's the idea. And it is then the source of joy. And this is his opening statement. If one finds this wisdom, if one has this wisdom, then it illumines him. It causes his stern face to beam. In other words, it gives him a joyful countenance. Why? Because it provides him with an internal strength. It provides him with an internal strength and reality that's not known by the foolish, no no matter how much power they have on the outside. We mentioned that in verse 19 of chapter 7, actually, where he says that wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Or that strength, the essence of that strength is one who is controlled in spirit, who is content and settled and stable in his inner man, is of greater value than any kind of earthly power. So he's commending to us wisdom, and that's his opening statement. And now he's going to apply it, however, to a particular situation. And the particular situation is how to live wisely under human authority, how to live wisely, in this case, in the context of life in the court of the king. In the context of life in the court of the king. And so he says, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Here he is mentioning life in the royal court. Life in the court of a king. Life in the presence of the king. And the particular context here is, what do you do, how do you live wisely when you live under the authority of another, when you live under the authority, in this case, of the king, and yet you find yourself in disagreement with him? You find yourself in opposition to his decrees, to his authority, and to the way that he exercises it. That's the context. That is, indeed, a thorny situation and one that comes with much danger and requires much wisdom. And so he gives counsel, and look at this first counsel at the beginning of verse 2. And basically it's this, that you exercise caution by acting obediently. In other words, open rebellion is dangerous. It would be unwise, it would be foolish to be reckless, rather one should be cautious. And he says here then, to keep the command or to keep the word of the king. It's, it's a temptation to rebel when we stand in opposition to authority over us, but it is not wise. But he says here, he grounds this specifically in, if you look at the second half, an oath before God. He says, because of the oath before God, literally the oath of the Lord, the oath of the Lord, Elohim. What does he mean by this? Well, this is, um, in terms of just translation and interpretation, is one of the, is, uh, one of the more difficult parts of this. It could mean essentially three different things. What is the oath? It could refer in this context to the oath of Israel bef- to their king before God. In other words, the oath of recognizing this is, in this case, the Davidic king, one whom God established, and their oath to follow him. It's the covenant that the people make with the king of recognizing God's authority and leadership through him. It could also refer to God's oath to the king, legitimating his authority. And there's even a third possibility that uh, one mentioned, and that it is the oath that one may take with those who decide to do evil and to rebel, although that is least likely. Most likely, the oath here, then, is that oath 
that Israel stood under in relationship to their king. The king that you remember that they asked for in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a king that will rule over them like the nations. Again, it wasn't a human king that was the bad part. It was the motivation that they had for asking it. Nonetheless, God gave them Saul, then he gave them David, and now the third in the line of the monarchy is Solomon. But in doing that, in establishing the kingship, the people essentially made an oath with the king of service, of recognizing God's rule through this king. And so it is wise then to obey the oath because it is an oath not merely to a human person, but it is an oath that is before God. In other words then, to disobey God's king or God's ruler, the one who God has established as the authority over his people, is to disobey God. We're not unfamiliar with that. If we recognize that all authority is established by God, then to rebel against that authority is to rebel against God's purposes and God's own will. Again, in the context here, this refers primarily to that promise of God, that establishment of God of a Davidic king, a Davidic kingdom. And the Davidic kingdom is simply a fancy way of saying the promise that God made to King David to establish his throne forever. And that is the covenant or the promise that all of the kings in the line of David, all of the kings, particularly of Judah after the kingdom split, were under that promise, although none of them knew the fullness of it. That would not be known until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that they were waiting for. But what was essential to an Old Testament Jew, and what is really broadens this commandment out even beyond that is this, is that all kingly authority, all authority that men have is derived from God and his sovereign purposes. It's derived from God. God is the one who gives authority and God is the one who rules over all kings. Let me just give you a few examples of this. In Exodus 9.16, you're familiar. Exodus, of course, is the, the account of God redeeming his people out of the slavery and the bondage that they were in in Egypt under the cruel authority of the Pharaoh that had risen up and put his people, subjected them through slavery and hard labor and so forth. And God was sent to deliver them. But he gives a word to the king, of the, uh, the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, through the mouth of Moses. And he says this, God does. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Now get how important it would have been to understand that. These are people who were experiencing hardship. They were surrounded by a culture of idolatry, which was the point of the plagues. They were in daily trouble and trial. They were daily oppressed. And yet, the word is that God himself had established that so that through their oppression and ultimately, in this case, his delivery of them from that oppression, he would be glorified. But God is the one in control. That's the point. Again, that's the whole point of the book of Exodus and and his declaring his power and his name might be proclaimed through all the earth. Daniel chapter 2. If you remember the context of Daniel is the people are in exile. Daniel is one of the first to go out of, to be taken from the nation of Israel, particularly the land of Judah, into the kingdom or the rule and the authority of Nebuchadnezzar in this case. And Daniel interpreted a dream and Early on in interpreting this dream, Daniel says this in declaring God's rulership over not only giving the interpretation, but the very 
situation that they stand in. Daniel said this, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He would later say, in the interpretation again of another dream, in Daniel 4, 25, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, and he's speaking here to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at that time from a human perspective. He says that this is the decree of the Most High, that is the interpretation of the dream, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you. Here's the key statement. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. In other words, even as Daniel was under the authority of a Gentile king who had removed him from his land, the promised land, the covenant land promised to them by God and given to them by God, even as he stood in service to this king that had no reverence to God, he acknowledged that he was in that place because God had ordained it to be so. And even Nebuchadnezzar had his power because God had given it to him. And of course, later Nebuchadnezzar would realize that too. So Solomon's wisdom here applies not merely to the Davidic king, but our understanding of any king, any authority over us. And this is not merely an Old Testament concept, again, as you are familiar with, but the authority of government, not only a monarchy, but any kind of government, any kind of civil authority is established by God. It's there because God placed it there. It's only there because God placed it there. Let me remind you of some familiar words. He says, every person, this is Romans 13, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which are, exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation themselves. That's precisely what the wisdom that Solomon is giving us here. Understand that you are under the authority of someone established by God and therefore it is wisdom not to oppose it. It's wisdom not to oppose them. Jesus himself, during his ministry, did never counseled rebellion or political overthrow. Rather, you know the familiar words. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. In other words, there is an earthly right that Caesar has to exercise rule over his citizens, and you are wise if you don't resist that rule, but you go along with it, that you keep the command. And of course, that was offensive to many there because they expected that he would counsel rebellion based on idolatry in one sense because it bore the image of Caesar, but he turns that around on them and says, well, it has his image, give it to him. But the image of God behind that lies on you, and you owe a greater debt to God than you do to Caesar. So the idea here is be wise. It's wise to remember that you are under authority, and whatever authority you're under is established by God, whether it's wise or foolish, good or bad. It is by God's design 
that we have the president at any stage of the American history that we have, that we have the Congress that we have, that we have the Senate that we have, that we have the mayors and the governors and the local officials that we have is ultimately by the decree of God. And they have a measure of authority over your life because God has established it to be so. That's the first part of his wisdom. Look at the second part of his wisdom. And then at the end we'll apply this. The second part of his wisdom then is this. You exercise caution first by not joining yourself with rebellion, but by listening to the authority that God has established and obeying it. Secondly, is by maintaining self-control. He says, do not be in a hurry to leave him and do not join in an evil matter for he will do whatever he pleases. And again, the context here is when you disagree when we don't like the authority, when we don't like the decision, when the decision that is given may even, in fact, itself be motivated by evil desires, by a wrong motivation, by something that is self-serving or with an agenda that is not in line with God's agenda and God's will. And so there are essentially two temptations here. The one is to show open disagreement with the king. Now again, particularly in this context, that had... Uh, a particular kind of warning to it, and there was a particular danger that attended it. You can remember in the context of ancient monarchies, the king could easily have you put to death. You remember even in the life of David, when Saul was displeased with him, do you remember how David had to flee for his life more than once? And it's 1 Samuel uh, 19 in which Saul threw a spear at David against the wall and nailed him against the wall and essentially was threatening his life. It was dangerous to displease the king. You remember Esther when she was told to go before the pagan king in order to plead for her people that she said, I don't really want to do that. Why? Well, because he hasn't asked me. And if I go and he hasn't asked me, then there's a danger of my being put to death because you know the commandment of the king. If he doesn't extend his scepter to me, then, you know, I'm toast. My life is over and what good will it be? And of course, Mordecai's counsel, her uncle, was, hey, if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it. (laughs) So obey God's will, take your risk, remember that he's sovereign. But the point here is this, that there there was an authority that the king had, and it was a dangerous thing to displease him. And so he says, don't be in a hurry, don't be quick, in this case, to show your displeasure. And that's the second temptation is this, is to oppose him to have open displeasure, and then to have open rebellion. And that's the idea of do not join in an evil matter. Why is it an evil matter? Well, it's an evil matter because it's not according to the will of God. In other words, even if the decision of the king is wrong, it's not right to oppose that decision necessarily. It's not right to go against him. It is still the will of God that is being worked out. God's purposes are being established. And again, remember even Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says, don't join in an evil matter. The idea is don't join in rebellion, and it's evil because it's against God's purposes. God established him. So be wise and to do what you're told, essentially. And again, the general principle here is do not be foolish and resistant. Choose your battles wisely, and more importantly, choose the battles that matter. And he's building to something. He's building to something. Choose the battles that matter. Don't get lost on the ones that are destined to futility and not to accomplish God's purposes. 
And so then he takes it even more. What is wise caution then says that knows that there is a proper time for everything. He says in verse 4, for the sin, since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? In other words, your resistance in this case is going to be foolish because he has authority and he's going to do what he wants. Then he says in verse 5, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. And again, the point is, be wise, exercise caution, and know that there is a proper procedure. Every government has its way to work out, well, not every government, our government has a way, a proper way to work out grievances. There is a proper way. One, an improper way would be to loot and steal and burn and destroy things. A proper way is to vote and have influence that works through the channels that are established by our own government and authorities. That would be one simple example. There's a way to do it and there is a way not to do it. And he says it is wise if you were consistent with the ways that are established. A proper time and a proper procedure. Don't be headstrong. Don't be foolish. Don't rush into an unwise situation. Don't unnecessarily put yourself at risk. And again, Daniel is, from Scripture, one of the prototypical examples of this, one of the best examples of this. Daniel went, as you'll remember, being taken to a foreign land, put under a foreign government, a Gentile government, in a place that was strange to them, that was filled with all kinds of dangers and threats, not only to their own lives, but to their own spiritual lives. And Daniel, with integrity, did not run into the presence of king or assert his own, with boldness, his own rebellion against the command of the king, but he went wisely, understanding that there was someone placed over him. And so he goes to this one who was placed over him, who had uh, told them that they were to eat things that it was not right for them to eat as Jews. And Daniel went to the overseer and the commander in verse 11 And he said, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And and then at the end of those 10 days, you know, essentially let us be evaluated and see if, if we're more effective in the king's service by following our own religious convictions than by eating the food forced on us by the king. And we know the story. He, they, him, Daniel and his friends were, of course, uh, excelled or they excelled in that situation. It was was God's blessing, particularly on their life. The mere point here is that Daniel did not rush in. He did not make openly a matter of rebellion the king's command on them. But he was wise. He understood the proper time. He understood how government worked. He knew the right channels to go through. He knew the right attitude and way to approach it. And God blessed that. And he understood clearly that the situation that he was in was ordained by God himself. And he did not hesitate in his obedience to God through a proper reverence for the king. This was consistent throughout his life. Let me just give you a few examples here. And then we'll see how directly this even applies to us. You remember, of course, the hallmark of Daniel's ministry or his really a prophetic role that he had as a Israelite captive in this Gentile nation was the interpretation of dreams, the declaration of those things that God was going to do. 
both in the life of those individual kings and in the life of his people. In chapter 4, Daniel went to a leader, Belshazzar, or Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene, is Belshazzar, and it says, then Daniel, or excuse me, Daniel's name was Belshazzar, but he's going and bringing a vision again to the king, and he says this, Daniel was appalled for, listen, while his thoughts alarmed him, the king responded and said, Belshazzar, that was the name assigned to Daniel, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar, or Daniel, replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, here's what I want you to notice here in terms of this attitude. Daniel shows a great tenderness towards the king, even a desire for him to continue in his flourishing, to continue in the experience of his authority and of his kingdom. Daniel, knowing that this was an ungodly king, exercising even over his people, a kind of authority that was hard for them to bear. And yet look how he goes, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you. Now you could take that as a kind of sarcasm or hypocrisy, but that's not at all the way the character of Daniel is presented. He means that sincerely. He had an honest affection for the king and that the king would do well. And he saw that this interpretation was against him and he did not rejoice in that. He says later in chapter 6, this is the new king that he was under, Darius, Daniel had another situation in which he was brought before the king. In chapter 4, listen to this, there were those who were jealous of Daniel and were plotting against him. And yet listen to how they describe Daniel, even in their desire to trick and plot against him. It says this, the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. In other words, his integrity as an official in the king's court, one who was entrusted with responsibilities. And how did they describe it? Or what did they say? They said, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Again, remember, he's in a pagan kingdom. He's in and surrounded by idolatry and those who have no loyalty to his God. He stands alone in that sense. And of course, his friends and Maybe others not mentioned, but Daniel stands alone in his position. And when they come to find an accusation against him, they can find nothing in his faithfulness to the king. To the king. He was utterly trustworthy to fulfill the king's commands. He was utterly trustworthy. And you can know that not all of the king's commands delighted Daniel. He didn't see in all of the king's commands the beauty of righteousness and holiness and truth and goodness. It's not to say that Daniel was asked to do evil, but he certainly knew that what was behind the things that he was asked to do was not a desire to glorify God, and yet he was a faithful servant of the king. He kept his command. He did not rebel. He did not in any way act in such a way that he sought to get personal gain at the king's expense, nor did he act in any way or give off the the, uh, the aroma, if you will, that he could be persuaded in any way to join in something against the king. He had a life of integrity. And his life of integrity was marked by his complete trustworthiness before a pagan and godless king in whose service he had been placed. 
He says in verse 22 of chapter 6 that even after their plot was at least successful, if you'll remember, because they wanted to make it to where Daniel, they couldn't pray to anyone but the king. Daniel prayed to his God. They revealed him. He was thrown into lion's den as an act of punishment. God spared him. But listen to how Daniel describes his own heart once he was delivered and discovered by Darius the next morning. He said, my God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. Listen, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and Toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. I have not been negligent in my duties before you. I have been trustworthy, and my heart towards you has been found pure and with integrity. This is, this is an example of what Solomon is talking about. Keep the command of the king. It is wise living under the authority that God has established to be obedient. Now, how are we to respond? How are we to respond? How are we? We certainly find ourselves in a situation in which the government is increasingly more estranged from the purposes of God and any reflection of God's righteousness and God's holiness and God's goodness. And these edicts are passed down, as it were, from those in authority who do not have the design, the flourishing of God's people. What are we to do? How do we apply the wisdom to us? How are we to respond? And one is this. Let me give you two. You're familiar with them, but let us be reminded of them this morning. One is this. By submitting to the authority God has placed over us, regardless of whether it's based on truth or falsehood, regardless of whether it's fair or unfair, we are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. Let me give you an example. Again, we've covered this, but 1 Peter chapter 2 is a very clear passage on this. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Remember, context is everything. Who is he writing to? What is their situation? How would this have impacted them? These were believers who were scattered because of persecution. They were being made to pay a price for their faith in Christ. They were separated from their homes. They were separated from families. And many, they were separated from sources of income. They were scattered throughout. They were in strange lands, many of them. And they were experiencing all kinds of opposition from the world. He tells them to keep your behavior excellent in the thing in which they slander you. He talks about friends who malign you because you no longer do the things they do. He talks about this increasing persecution and judgment begins with the house of God. And in the midst of that, he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What are they having to silence? What is the ignorance that is having to be silenced? Those who bring accusation against you, those who malign you, those who speak negatively about you, those who would persecute you because of your faith. And the way that he says that you act wisely in that situation is to obey, essentially. 
Yield yourself. Realize that the king is an authority by God's command. By God's command. We are to be wise, and there is a sense in which this wisdom reflects Jesus' words, to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves, but in our innocence it is to not be accused of rebellion. Be like Daniel. That people could look at Christians and could have no legitimate offense against us in terms of our response to human authority. No subversive means or ways to rebel against and have open hostility and resistance to that which God has established to be over us. And remember, the conditions here are not based on whether it's evaluated as fair or even having the right motive. The conditions of obedience are for the Lord's sake because he has established it. Do you see the difference? That's the reason for the obedience. As a matter of fact, just as a footnote, he's going to apply that to servants over their masters, even those who are unfair to them and treat them harshly. He's going to apply it in marital situations where there is a spouse, in this particular case, a female, a wife, who has a husband who is an unbeliever, who's disobedient to the word. He's going to put at the center of all of that the example of Christ himself, who yielded to the will of God, even though in his case it meant death, though it was a death designed by God to be an atonement. And he says, follow that example. Follow that example. And so what is important here to grasp is this, just broadly for our purposes, is that the obedience in these situations is not based on the worthiness of the authority being obeyed. That's the key. It's based on the purposes of God and it's our obedience to God. In other words, a wife does not submit and seek to live in a godly way to a disobedient husband because the husband is worthy of that respect, because he is worthy of that kind of tenderness, but because Christ is, and in obedience to Christ. A slave is not respectful and submissive to his master because he's a good master who elicits that from the slave's heart. He does so because Christ has commanded him to do so. It's his obedience to Christ. We would serve not by way, means of pleasing men, but by pleasing Christ, whom we serve. That's also in Colossians. And so it is here, if we're working our way backwards, you as citizens of a nation are to obey the authority of that nation and of that government and of that city, not because it's right and worthy, because it's good, because it is that which would elicit out of us a desire to obey, but because God has established that authority. And we do well and we silence evildoers when we are yielded to it. And it takes much wisdom. And this is where we find ourselves in this historical moment in terms of this point in history and God's unfolding of his plan. What are the requirements of the state for us as a church? How do we respond in a way that shows integrity before men, faithfulness to God, and the cautions of wisdom to wait for clearer battles? Do we see the reflection of Solomon? Don't show open hostility. There's going to be a time, and this is going to lead us to our Second point, when rebellion is called for, when resistance is called for. But we must be wise to know when that is. There is a proper time and there is a proper procedure. Now, we obviously find ourselves with that with coronavirus, COVID. What are the mandates? What is governor? What has the governor said? What are we required to do? And as you know, we've been wrestling through that and we've been 
constantly talking. As a matter of fact, we're meeting with the deacons uh, today, and that will be a big part of the conversation. How do we move forward? Is our policy reflecting the requirements of the state? Are we rightly taking a stand where we should with a t- proper time and procedure, or are we not? And so those are things that we will begin discussing again and that we'll have a discussion with in, in a, as a congregation when we have our next congregational meeting in April. But this is where the rubber meets the road. And, and what cannot be emphasized enough is that the justification for whatever decision is made, and it is complex, granted, cannot be whether we think something is right or fair, but it is what is obedient to God's word and what is wise in the context in which we find ourselves. There's certainly plenty to disagree with, and there's certainly plenty to have an argument against in terms of purpose and motivation, but what is our role in it? Imagine what this would have been like to a servant to hear, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That means from the heart, not with grumbling, not with anger, not with hostility, but with all respect. Why? Because the goal of the obedience is ultimately that God would be honored, that God would be pleased For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Because that is what Christ did. Secondly, how are we to respond? One is by submitting wisely, but out of fear of the Lord, not openly rebellious where it's not called for, but obediently. Secondly is this is that there are also times that we are to resist human rule when it oversteps its bounds, its proper bounds of authority. We know well the reason that it's important to understand that authority is established to God so that we would have a proper response in our heart of submission, but it is also to remember that there is no authority but comes from God, and there is no authority ultimately but God. It is God's own authority that establishes that government. It is God's own authority that will destroy and remove a government. And it is God's authority that supersedes any government. And that is then where we often as God's people find ourselves in a certain kind of tension. And so what needs to be clear in the reaction of God's people is What I am resisting is what I am disobeying. Is it clearly out of obedience to God and his superior authority? Or is it merely because of my own dislikes, my own attitude, my own perspective? And so that's the discerning point. Would obeying what I'm being asked to do involve disobedience to God, whether by omission or commission, by whether what I'm told not to do that God has commanded me to do, or whether I'm told to do something God has told me not to do. That's the question that needs to be answered by God's people. Now, in the midst of all of that, in terms of what is the right way to rebel or what is we should not rebel against, there is, again, of course, the wisdom, the time and procedure. There are other means that we can pursue what is right and and such in the context in which we find ourselves. And, but the idea is, is that we know clearly that when there is disobedience, that it is the disobedience that Scripture calls us to, and not our own personal frustrations. And this is 
very challenging, and I think it's very challenging. I, I personally find this very challenging, emotionally sometimes, in terms of irritation, uh, uh, in the times that we find ourselves. So when do we disobey? Well, let me remind us of familiar text. Many places we can go, but let's just go to those that are the most on the surface. Uh, Acts chapter 5, it was the preaching of the gospel. It went out, it began, as Jesus said, in Jerusalem, then went to Judea, and then went to Samaria, and then went to the other parts of the earth, but it began in Judea. And Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem and then Judea. This was the epicenter, as it were, of those Jews committed particularly to God. It was the place where the Jewish leadership had killed their Messiah. And now they are resisting those who are his servants, as Jesus said. And so as you'll remember, as the apostles went out and after they preached and God was working great things through them and they were in the temple declaring Christ as the Messiah. They were told by the religious leaders that they are not to do that, that they were to stop. And they said, we cannot do that. When they stood before trial, the leadership said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You tend, want to make us responsible for his death. Of course, they were, and they knew it. But nonetheless, this is their defense. And Peter says in verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand, and so forth. We're witnesses to these things. In other words, that would have been this, this dilemma. You are, by telling us to stop preaching, asking us to commit a sin of commission. In other words, to not do what God has told us to do. If you tell us that we cannot speak the truth of God's word, if you tell us that that is forbidden, then we must say that is not a command that we are going to obey. Because there is a greater authority. If you remember, what is the last word that Jesus spoke to them? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And all authority is greater than the authority of the temple rulers. And so therefore, if you're telling us to do something or not to do something that God has commanded us to do, we are his witnesses, then we must respectfully disobey we must respectfully tell you that you do not have an authority that usurps God's command. And so come what may, we will obey God. And of course, they were beaten. They were punished. And what was their response? They went away on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then what did they do? Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Notice that they did not stir up a rebellion against the Jewish leadership. They did not gather the apostles and find all of the arms that they could and go in there and overtake what was rightfully God's and them as his true emissaries. What did they do? They spoke the truth, they received the beating, and they went on obeying Christ. And then, for some, it meant death, such as Stephen and others, James. Others, 
in the prison that Paul went and took many families off. They did not mount up in an overthrow of the unrighteous. And this is even of God's leadership among the Jews. They took the, they took the beating, as it were, and then they kept on obeying Christ. They recognized as well as Paul, we see in the example of other cases, but Paul, who understood that there is a proper time and procedure, and so when he was going to be beaten as a Roman citizen against Roman law, he says, what, are you going to beat a Roman citizen? You can't do that. And they stopped. That's against the law. That was a proper time and a proper procedure. There was a place to do that. There was a way to do that. But then later, when he appealed to Caesar and they kept him under Guard, he submitted to that as well, but he kept on preaching Christ. He preached it when he was in front of the councils. He preached it while he was in the praetorium guard, he mentions in Philippians. He preached it when he was left. He preached it while he was in his rented quarters. At the end of Acts, he was faithful, but he did not lead a rebellion. He simply kept doing what God had called him to do, which was to be a mouthpiece for Christ. And here's the encouragement that Christians have. That though the church externally might receive the persecution of the world and resistance to God, Christ has this promise. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And how will he build that church? Well, if we take that great ancient ancient statement by Tertullian, through the blood of the martyrs. Now, we may not all need to shed our blood. We hope so. I hope not. But if we were to take that and broaden it out, we'd say by the faithfulness of God's people against all that sought to resist the will of God, all that sought to resist God's purposes. So there is a time to rebel and there is a time not to. Imagine this. Many Christians, many of us, feel that we are nearing the end of this age and we're seeing things rapidly move forward. And what is it moving forward to? A kind of government, a kind of system, a world system that stands in direct opposition to God. And God's people feel the injustice of it all. And this is where Solomon's going to take us next week. God's people feel the injustice of it all. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 6, what is the cry of those who had been victims of an ungodly, worldly system? He says this, they cried out, this is in the presence of God. Those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. In other words, when they were told not to preach, they preached. When they were told not to obey Christ, they obeyed Christ. And their testimony caused them to be slain. And it says in verse 10, and this is before the throne of God. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? When is there going to be justice for our unjust death? And of course, God's word is, be patient. There's still others who have to die. And then I will bring in, in my own timing, fulfill my own purposes. The broad point here is simply this. There is a time to rebel. There is a time to resist. And when we do so, we can do so with courage and we can do so with strength when we know this, that we stand firmly within the will of God in that action. 
when we stand firmly in the will of God in resistance, then our resistance comes with the power of God. It comes with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It comes with the illuminating power of the Spirit, the strengthening power of the Spirit to our hearts. It comes with the kind of courage that we will need, the divine courage, to be a witness for Christ in the world no matter what it comes. And it's not our courage. It's not because we are so strong of heart. It is because the Spirit of God upholds His people to bear witness to Christ. That's why. But we need to be wise about it. And we need to be very wise about it. And wisdom, let me just say, is a challenge sometimes, isn't it? Because our natural flesh resists things that we find offensive. And it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for many of us here. But we must listen to the counsel of God. And so what is it we are to do? We are to know there's a proper time and wait and be clear on it. We are to know that all authority is established by God, even godless authority, to accomplish his purposes. And his command to us is not to try to change it through ungodly means, but rather to yield to it and let God work out his will in the life of his church in this world, which very often means difficulty for God's people. But we are to trust him. And then when their time comes, when very clearly We are commanded to do something that disobeys God, such as hire homosexuals to be a part of church staff, which requires us to not speak about things that the culture has decided is hateful, but the church recognizes as God's goodness to his people by calling them to what is for our flourishing, our salvation, and good. It means at that point, then we say, no, we must be faithful to God. And may God help us to do so. It takes great humility and it takes great faith. So we'll end there and we'll pick up the last half of the chapter next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then uh, John will close us in him. Father, it is a challenge to live in a fallen world. But we take great comfort to know that you have not left us without your word to guide us. You have not left us without your spirit to teach us and to strengthen us. You have not left us without the body of Christ in the present to lean on and to walk through whatever you have called us to together. You have not left us without witnesses of those who have gone before us. Hebrews 11 and all of church history in your word is a testimony to this. You have not left us alone for you yourself had said you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. Help us to believe that and to be faithful. And help us, Lord, to be humble. And I know that I pray for many of us here in my own heart that we would know the proper time and the proper procedure, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. And you said that when we lack wisdom, that we are to ask you and you give generously. And so we do as individuals and as a church ask you to give us wisdom of how to navigate these times in a way that brings glory to Christ and yet does not compromise in any way on what you have called us to do as your people. So help us, our Lord. Help us as your people to honor you. And again, we would just remember that those who may hear this and have not yet committed their life to you, who are friendly to the gospel, who are friendly to the truth and that you lay before us, but have not yet committed their lives, who do not yet know what it means to desire holiness, 
to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to kill sin in our thoughts and attitudes, to rely solely on the grace of Christ. Pray that you would illumine the gospel to them and bring them to faith. We pray these things in your matchless name, Lord Jesus, amen.